This is Frank Gaffney with a word about a truly great American patriot in urgent need. Rich Higgins served in the U.S. Army and as a key civilian Pentagon official and senior strategist on President Trump's National Security Council. After he left the NSC, Rich continued advising Mr. Trump and others about the threats we are facing from enemies, foreign and domestic. He chronicled his experiences over the past 20 years fighting for America First in a terrific memoir entitled The Memo. Now this courageous freedom fighter is gravely ill due to severe complications caused by the Chinese Communist Party virus. He urgently needs help to defray the enormous costs of successive surgeries and a prospective organ transplant. I urge you to join me in contributing to a GoFundMe campaign named Medical Help for Rich Higgins. That's Medical Help for Rich Higgins at GoFundMe.com. God bless you and Rich Higgins. Dedicated to the survival of American democracy in an increasingly dangerous world, this is Secure Freedom Radio with Frank Gaffney, acted as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Policy under President Ronald Reagan, founder of the Center for Security Policy in Washington, D.C., the go-to man for defense and foreign policy issues, joined by the greatest minds in the security policy business, the special forces in the war of ideas at Secure Freedom Radio with Frank Gaffney. Welcome to Secure Freedom Radio. This is Frank Gaffney, your host and guide for what I think of as an intelligence briefing on the war for the free world. There is arguably no more contentious flashpoint at the moment in the war for the free world than the Middle East. And I'm very pleased to have with us for our first two segments of this program, a friend, a colleague, and a very esteemed expert now on the dynamics of the Middle East. Her name is Dr. Victoria Coates. She has served in a number of senior positions in both the Congress of the United States and the executive branch, including as the national security advisor to Senator Ted Cruz of Texas and the deputy national security advisor to President Donald Trump. She has contributed mightily to our public policy debate on these topics and more, um, notably in her books, uh, David's Sling, A History of Democracy and Ten Works of Art, and in her forthcoming book, Seeing the Light, A History of Christianity and Twelve Works of Art, reflecting her PhD in art history, as well as her understanding of the ways of the world. Um, Victoria Coates is these days a very distinguished senior fellow, I'm proud to say, of the Center for Security Policy. Dr. Coates, welcome back to Secure Freedom Radio. Good to have you. We are speaking to you uh, as uh, your former boss, Senator Cruz, has just returned from a trip to the Middle East. And this provides us uh, both a backdrop for what I wanted to talk with you about today, as well as um, an introduction to a webinar that I believe the two of you will be having with the Center for Security Policy team uh, probably sometime next week about his travels, among other things. Um, Give us a situation report, if you would, um, Victoria, about how things stand now in this ever- turbulent region as a result, at least in part, of the policies that uh, the Biden-Harris administration has been pursuing for just the past four months or so? Well, Frank, I think we really have to hand it to them. I mean, they've they've taken their four months and, and really uh, done a number on the Middle East. I think it was very important for Senator Cruz and Senator Haggerty to go over and, and visit our friends in Israel who are in a very difficult position both security-wise and in and, and ter- terms of their internal politics. Uh, and so it's it's a critical moment 
for senior leadership in the United States to be a reassuring voice for the Israelis that the United States stands with them and that the, the alliance is unshakable. And unfortunately, we're not getting that out of uh, President Biden or Vice President Harris and certainly uh, sending somebody like Michael Ratney over there as the acting ambassador is 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 not not what you would call a reassuring signal. So that's why I think it was really important to have Senator Cruz and Senator Haggerty, you know, take their time to go over there, uh, have a series of senior senior leadership meetings, went down to the Gaza border, uh, towards some of the the wreckage from the Hamas rockets. Um, and as I said, just really send a signal to the Israelis that they, they have good friends in Washington. I would characterize what these four months have brought in the following way, Victoria, and I'd like to get your thoughts on that as well as further amplification on um, particularly the internal politics in Israel at the moment, which are certainly um, in a state of high drama. Iran emboldened, our Arab allies in the region undermined, the Palestinians unleash and Israel beleaguered. Am I getting anything wrong in that characterization? I'm sure I could say it more more starkly than that, but but that seems to me to be a pretty powerful indictment of four months of U.S. policy. Well, it, it, it is. And actually, no, I think you, you're spot on. But I mean, the, the, the problem I have with this situation is it doesn't have to be this way. Uh, there was a really remarkable op-ed in Newsweek yesterday, which I recommend to all your listeners, by a senior Emirati, Ali al-Narami, uh, who's uh, very high up in their National Security Council equivalent. And he, he writes about how we cannot put the genie back in the bottle in terms of the Palestinians, and that what's going on with the Palestinians is being fueled by Iran, and that the Arabs should be standing with Israel. It's a remarkable statement, unimaginable five years ago. And now you have the Emiratis offering this in the American press. So your, your assessment of what the Biden administration is doing is entirely accurate. But it, it, as I said, does not have to be this way. The region doesn't want it. More to the point, it wasn't this way four months ago. And and the Emiratis, of course, and, and you were in, deeply involved in some of that diplomacy, having signed on to the Abraham Accords, which this State Department says they're not going to call those accords, by the way, um, has seemingly been involved in, as in so many areas, but uh, particularly in this region, a kind of wrecking operation of what Donald Trump uh, bequeathed to them. It really is. And I mean, I think that's unfortunate because you know, if you go back in, in history, uh, if you look at the 1979 peace treaty between Israel and Egypt or the 1994 treaty between Israel and Jordan, those were both shepherded by Democrat presidents. It was Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton. You couldn't catch me saying a negative thing about them. I mean, they, they were monumental achievements for the United States, for Israel, for the region. And the developments between Egypt and Israel over the last six months really, really for the period since the Abraham Accords were signed, we've made more progress with the Israel-Egypt relationship than we've made since 1979. This is enormously beneficial. And you would think any U.S. administration would just be happy about it. And instead, it seems particularly, um, Victoria, and uh, we're going to have to take a break here in a moment, but in particular, what they are doing with this uh, determined 
effort to sort of reiterate the mistakes of the Obama years with respect to Iran and to return to the status quo ante, the, the way things have always been with the Palestinians, failed though they may have been for almost all of that time, um, they, they seem, again, determined not to embrace, let alone endorse and build upon, but uh, but to take apart um, the framework that that really made for, it seemed, a far more peaceable, at least the promise of it, a far more peaceable um, and enduring peace at that in the Middle East. Well, I think so. And I, I think the kind of irony here is that the Abraham Accords really opened up a new path for the Palestinians, of all people. You know, the Palestinians who had been sold by their leadership, the lie that the Arabs were coming to destroy Israel, that they they tried before in 73, for example, and they were going to come back and Israel would be vanquished. We know that's not true now. Hard truth for the Palestinians, but also a reality check. Maybe they then could actually embrace reality and figure out what the future looks like for, for that that group of people. But instead, this administration is going back to the unconditional age. You might have seen that President Abbas sent $40,000 in cash to the family of a terrorist who killed two Israelis, leaving seven children behind. Uh, I mean, yesterday, this happened. That's what they're doing with the money. And it just doesn't help. Pay to slay, as it's called, that's actually illegal, I think, under U.S. law. And um, we're going to have to talk about that, yes, uh, a bit more, uh, among other things, with Victoria Coates on the other side of this very short break. Stay tuned. Visit us at facebook.com slash securefreedom with Frank Gaffney. You're listening to Secure Freedom Radio with Frank Gaffney from the nation's capital in Washington, D.C. Welcome back. We are continuing our conversation with Dr. Victoria Coates, a senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy, who formerly served both Senator Ted Cruz and President Donald Trump in senior national security positions. And we are picking her brain about uh, part of the world that she spent a lot of time on in those capacities, uh, the Middle East. And Victoria, you just touched on something towards the end of that uh, first block, and I want to come back to it. The Taylor Force Act prohibits U.S. funding from being used by the Palestinians to effectively reward terrorists or their families um, for murdering people like um, young Taylor Force, an American citizen killed by the Palestinians um, a few years back. Talk a bit about what the workaround is for the administration to that law. How can they get around it? And should they? Well, I, I mean, personally, I'm not quite sure. I mean, I was involved in, in drafting the, the Taylor Force Act when, when I was a congressional aide, and, and then it passed when I was, was in the White House. And I think important to remember who Taylor was. He was a graduate student at Vanderbilt who was on a, a school trip to Israel, and they were, were down in Jaffa, and a Palestinian terrorist just pulled out a knife and stabbed him to death. And he was, he was a, a veteran. I mean, a big guy. You know, this was not an easy thing to do. 
and his parents, Robbie and Stuart, uh, made it their lives work to get this legislation passed and prohibit rewarding uh, individuals like this terrorist for killing an American citizen. I mean, this guy didn't care if he was an American or, or an Israeli. He just saw this group of people as representative of what he considered his, his oppressors. So he didn't ask for anybody's passport. Or just infidels, as the case may be. But this was the policy and has been and evidently still is the policy of the Palestinian Authority. And those are the guys we're told are the good guys. This isn't Hamas. This is the government to which we're pressing the Israelis to surrender still more territory and relinquish uh, still more authority to. No? Right. And it's, I mean, I think this has to be for the American taxpayer a very clear signal of where the Palestinian Authority stands. And, you know, we were very lucky at the center to get to partner this week with TIPP. With, uh, it's a polling uh, outfit out of New Jersey, and, and, and they ran some questions for us, uh, one of which was, do you support sending unconditional aid to the Palestinians, even if some of it may be diverted to support terrorism? And the American people, Democrats and Republicans alike, oppose this to the tune of 70 percent. Understandably. Right. This was evident in the in the Taylor Force Act itself. Yeah. No, it's crazy. Let me turn to one other thing that's crazy. Uh, and I'd like you to walk us through it. Um, one of the things that had characterized the relationship between the United States and Israel over the years is that in time of need, we have tried to, at a minimum, resupply Israel when its stores of um, ordnance and weapons and so on have been depleted by its attacking enemies. Um, that was not the case this time around. Uh, in the onslaught from Hamas in Gaza with some 4,000 rockets raining down on Israel, which were to some extent intercepted by this remarkable uh, system called the Iron Dome, there were people in the Congress who uh, actually objected to um, replenishing uh, the uh, the weapons that you know make the Iron Dome an effective anti-missile defense system. What's up with that, and what should we be doing to ensure that Israel can rely on us in this regard in the future? Well, it it was a very interesting situation with shades of 2015, when the then Obama administration refused an emergency Israeli request to replenish their their precision guided Hellfire missiles, uh, and slow walked it while they were in the middle of the shooting war. And it's one of the reasons Israel had to come to a ceasefire with Hamas in August of 15 uh, prematurely. And it's why Hamas then just spent the intervening years rebuilding and then attacked again. And uh, as you said, Iron Dome was remarkably effective in both that inter interchange and in the, the most recent one, intercepting up to 90% of these rockets that Iran had supplied to Hamas and Hamas then attacked Israel with. And, you know, I think a number of leaders in Congress, including Senators Cruz and Senator Haggerty, uh, were calling on the administration to, to, to preemptively reassure Israel that if they needed more of the Tamir interceptors, that the United States would support that request. Uh, some of them are manufactured in Israel. Some can be manufactured here. They have a proposed joint site. Uh, which is what I wrote about, getting that up and running as quickly as possible here in the United States. I think it's going to be at Fort Bliss. Uh, but th that, that is how you send the message to both Hamas and Iran that Israel is not alone. And we had the very shameful uh, spectacle of the White House press secretary refusing 
to, to make that assurance. She just kept saying, I have nothing further for you on this. I have nothing further for you. How about, yeah, yes, we will do this. I mean, and, and you can see the Congress uh, is moving quickly to, to, uh, to meet an Israeli request for an additional billion dollars in security uh, partnership because that's what their constituents want them to do. It, it may be moving quickly now. It was not moving at all in the event, as I recall. And indeed, there were members of the um, what's been called the Hamas caucus in the House of Representatives, uh, the squad uh, particularly, that um, were determined to block such, uh, you know, uh, additional support for Israel when it was most immediately needed. And it does call to mind, um, you know, one of the major precepts of uh, Israeli security policy over the years is to try to be as self-sufficient in these regards as they can. And uh, if ever they needed reinforcement for that point, it was this recent episode. Um, let me turn to one other thing uh, that I know you're giving a lot of thought to and have over the years, Victoria Coates. Uh, we have a project at the Center for Security Policy, I'm very proud to say, uh, led by our colleague, uh, Dr. David Wormser, and you participate in it. Others of us do as well. Aimed at fighting what we call global anti-Semitism, uh, this seems to be this scourge of the millennia seems now to be having a renaissance, um, not just in the Middle East where Islamists, you know, practice it uh, relentlessly, um, but in Europe and even in the United States. What is going on in this regard? Uh, what's the wellspring of this? And how, in particular, is uh, the idea that people are not really anti-Semites, they're just anti-Israel, offering a new sort of means of rationalizing or at least uh, concealing the true character of what is, in fact, a racist, anti-Semitic agenda. Well, and, you know, at this point, I, I don't even want to dignify it with the term like anti-Semitism, which, which gives some kind of sort of quasi-intellectual gloss to this. I mean, this is Jew hatred. They, they, these are people who simply hate Jews and, by extension, Israel. And what's interesting is, as I said in the first segment, this is actually getting better in the Middle East of all places. I mean, you have UAE opening a, a Holocaust memorial uh, this week, and you know, they, and, and and pledging you know greater solidarity with the Jews. While in the United States, you had this shameful series of very violent attacks on Jews, which were proxy attacks on Israel. And again, they didn't ask for anybody's passport. They didn't care that they were Americans. They, it, all they cared about was trying to hurt Jews. And that is a, just a disgraceful, despicable, as you say, just scourge. And we have to call it out. Uh, my friend, Len Kordakovsky, uh dear friend from the State Department, uh, actually a refugee from the Soviet Union, had to write a piece this week about the discrimination his children are facing because they're Jewish in New Jersey. This is something I had a personal experience with in the old USSR and was one of the reasons why my old boss, Scoop Jackson and others were so intent on trying to enable Jews to leave it. And his family was among those who were able to. But, but what you're saying is in our own country now, what he's saying in our own country now, um, people are uh, beyond just these 
instances of attacks, which future, unfortunately were relatively few in number so far. But it bespeaks the sort of sense that it's okay to engage in this kind of behavior in America, does it not? Well, and I would go back to what you were mentioning about the so-called squad. Uh, I mean, these are very vocal very high-profile, media-savvy individuals from extremely specific congressional districts where this kind of behavior and rhetoric is acceptable. But the good news is it's a very, very small number. And you have, I think, quite courageous congressmen like Dean Phillips, who's, I believe, Minnesota 3, Ilan Omar is Minnesota 5. So these are almost neighboring districts. And Dean Phillips called out the squad and said, we have to reject this. We have, we, there's no place for anti-Semitism in the United States. And these people need to be encouraged. And the so-called called squad needs to be called out. Uh, and just particularly by their fellow Democrats. No, I mean, this is the thing is that they, we went through this exercise, as you recall very well, not so long ago, where there was supposed to be a resolution decrying um, what I believe uh, Ilan Omar had been doing in this vein and uh, turned into some watered down resolution that denounced white supremacism or something. I mean, it's, it's staggering how um, difficult the Democratic Party these days, Scoop Jackson's old party, I have to say, um, now finds it to um, hold these people accountable, as you rightly say, and, uh, and, and more to the point, repudiates them when they should be. That's for sure. Victoria Coates, I had wanted to ask you about the state of uh, the political situation in Israel. We touched on it at the beginning, but folks, we're going to have to have you back for that purpose and also encourage everyone to stay tuned by checking at securefreedom.org for the upcoming webinar that Victoria will be doing an interview with her old boss and our great friend, a keeper of the flame. Ted Cruz. Uh, that's a coming attraction, but um, we'll be talking to you, I'm sure, between times as well. Victoria, thank you for your time today and for your courtesy in making this particular interview possible. It's deeply appreciated. Next up, we'll speak with Sam Faddis about uh, the enemy within, among other things, right here at home. That and more straight ahead.